So if you would please turn into to the book of Acts chapter 7. Our journey through Acts brings us to a really pivotal moment this morning, not just in the life of Stephen, uh, but in the church itself. Um, this morning we, we're looking at the first recorded martyrdom, um, recorded account of martyrdom, a Christian having his life taken from him. And so this, as you remember, it comes right on the heels of, of the sermon that Stephen preached that we looked at last week. And so when we think of sermon, don't picture this, you know, podium and rows of chairs and people looking in the same direction. This was, this was basically uh, Stephen respond, a speech that he gives responding to this charge of blasphemy to this really angry mob and, and this Jewish court. And so he's, he's giving his response and he takes all of their false accusations against him and he and that they've hurled at them, and then he turns them back basically on his accusers. And, and he shows them that this mob, just like their Jewish ancestors before them, they, they, they have disobeyed, they've broken God's law. That's kind of the conclusion. They, they didn't see the signs that God gave them as pointing to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So they, they loved the signs, the law, the temple, the prophets, and they, they prided themselves in those things. But they were f- so focused on those that they missed the reality that those things were pointing to, to Jesus Christ. And so let's read what happened as a result and then we'll pray together. So picking it up in verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, this speech that Stephen gave, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Well, during the tensions that existed in the United States of America during the war between the states, as that really escalated in danger and destruction, um, President Abraham Lincoln was giving an address in which he spoke rather charitably about uh, those who were not in support of the federal government. And he referred to them in this address simply as Southerners who were in error. That brought no no small amount of criticism on the president from his loyal supporters, honestly. One critic said, you should have spoken to them of them as enemies who need to be destroyed. To which Lincoln famously responded, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? 
And this is how he attempted to lead as president. In fact, he appointed, appointed many of his, quote, former enemies to be part of his cabinet. Well, this isn't a message about civil war. This is, this is about our text, and there's a connection here. Listen, God often makes his enemies his friends. He does. And in this passage, we're introduced to a name here, Saul, and that's, it's going to come back into focus in a few weeks, but uh, it's, it's intended right here to, to be a, 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 to stand out to us. And so he's right here at the, kind of the edge of this account of the martyrdom of Stephen. He's there, and he's mentioned several times. And so Saul, this enemy of the gospel, this persecutor of the church, he will become Paul, the second greatest preacher to ever walk the face of the planet, next to the Lord Jesus. And so God will take this man who's, who's holding coats as people throw stones at Stephen to kill him. That's incredible. We just think of the, the travesty that's taking place, what we just read here. He's approving of his death. <laughs> he, he's going from house to house. They're, they're going, dragging men and women out of their homes, destroying families. This is certainly an enemy by any definition. <laughs> and what do we see? He'll be made a friend. He'll be made a friend. He'll be made a friend of God and will become this ambassador of Jesus Christ and this preacher of the gospel and a leader in the church. And in fact, he himself will be stoned and he will miraculously survive though. He'll be beaten with rods three times, five times. He'll endure scourging with whips. He'll be shipwrecked three times. He'll go hungry. He'll be exposed to death time and time again, all because he became the friend of God. And God comes and He makes this man who's an enemy when we meet Him here, and He makes him a friend. And, and, and what, I, what it seems Luke wants us to do here with these details and why His name shows up here is he, he, in a sense, wants us to see what Saul saw. That sounds like a tongue twister. To hear what Saul heard. To sense what Saul sensed here with all of these details. And so, just keep that in mind. But just a question before we dive into this text. Just thinking of the connection to us. Have you become a little bored with or a little callous to or a little numb to the truth that the God of all creation looked down upon us who were once His enemies and He's made you His friend? Have you become somewhat Say unimpressed by that. that. That God came to you and turned you from being an enemy to a friend. I confess that that's a struggle. I think I have and I think that I'm not alone in that. That my heart can become somewhat cold to this reality and uh, of sovereign grace and mercy and turning me from God's enemy to become His friend. And related to that, have you become somewhat cynical as you pray for the salvation of certain people in your life? That God could really turn this apparent enemy of God and true enemy of God, a, fa a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, a classmate, some world leader, somebody we see that's so, so vehemently opposed to the Lord that he could, he could actually make them, him or her, his friend. Have you grown cynical? Maybe as we look at this together, 
Some of that hardness of heart that we probably do have and that coldness of heart can be melted along with our cynicism and unbelief. So let's walk through this together with those questions in mind. So the first thing I want us to see that Saul witnessed was this. It's that the fury, the fury of the world can become an opportunity to see the vindication of Christ's message and his messengers. That's a big, long, wordy point, I realize, and that's why it's on the screen for you note takers. So, but, and the way we're going to see this is there are a couple contrasts that I think are really sharp here that we need to, we need to note. There are these two types of, we could say spirituality. That's how I'm going to say, say it, that are set side by side. And there are these two types of courts that we're going to see. So first, we see two kinds of spirituality. So again, verse, verse, um, 54, when they heard these things, so the, these things, again, Stephen's sermon that we looked at last week, and in that speech, again, he's challenging them for having one kind of, quote, spirituality, which was really spirituality without the Holy Spirit. They, they, they were zealous. They had this zealous commitment at one level to the law and to the temple and to the prophets and to Moses. And, and, but it was this thin veneer that concealed this deep-seated enmity towards God. That's one type of spirituality. That's a kind. You can have the Word of God. You can have thousands of years of traditions and customs that were given by God that were designed to teach you to be dependent upon God and delighting in His person. You can have those things. And yet you can still, as Stephen said in that speech, you can actively, quote, resist the Holy Spirit. You can persecute God's prophets. You can condemn the righteous one, Jesus Christ which is exactly what they did. You can be so close to the true stuff and so far. That's what we saw last week. That, and so Saul's, Saul's kind of looking at that kind of spirituality. He's, he's, it's on full display with this mob and with this court that's in front of him. But more than that, what's he doing? He's living it. This is his kind of spirituality. This is Saul's religion. And so, in this, in this kind of spirituality, it has certain identifiers. It has, has certain marks. There are these common features that we note in this passage, and I think we can see in our own context. And so, just for one test, just, just show someone with this kind of spirituality, that, that show them God's grace in His Word in even a gentle way, and it will make them so angry. It will make them so angry. And that's what happens here. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They were furious, some of your translations may say. That word enraged, it's actually made up of a few different Greek words. And it, it, it means literally they were pierced to their core. They were cut in two. And confront somebody with grace. And that's what he's doing in this speech. is just rehearsing God's sovereign grace towards His people and their rebelliousness against this. But he's still faithful and he's still holding out this grace. And you confront somebody with that who has this kind of traditional spirituality but no Holy Spirit. And they'll feel, once one commentator said, disemboweled. You'd better watch out. He's so angry. Second, there will be behavior though that flows from that. And you can see this in the text. They ground, they or gnashed their teeth at him. Verse 40, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears like the little kids. Nah, 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 you know, I just don't want to hear it. We're not going to hear you, Stephen. People who don't have the Holy Spirit, they can very quickly, when, when challenged, show signs of being really against you and what you're saying. 
Third, they may actually act against it. Verse 57, again, they, they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now remember, Stephen's standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. This is, in essence, he's before John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and, and the others. I mean, this, these are the, these are the highest, this is the highest court in the, in, in, in the land and in, in Jewish, in, in, among the Jewish people. And they, they absolutely lose it. They bypass examining evidence. They don't bother pronouncing a sentence. They simply drag him out in this mob-like fashion outside of the city limits because you can't stone somebody inside the city limits. And they go out to kill him. And that's one of the final signs. When, when the, it's this, is when the ethically unthinkable, in this case murdering, killing somebody, when that becomes perfectly acceptable in your mind, you can be pretty sure you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with hate. Seething hatred. These are religious people. These are the most religious people in the land. These were esteemed for their... I mean, these are, these are God's chosen people. This is not some, you know, terrorist organization like we think today. No. But they could kill Stephen in cold blood. And that's exactly what this is. It's, stoning was a horrific and brutal way to die. And there's different thoughts exactly what this involved, but, but it was horrendous for the victim. It was unbelievable, unimaginable, prolonged pain. It was not quick. It was awful for those who participated in it because it was such, so up close and personal in the way you're killing somebody. And, and, and the first stones wouldn't do the job. And so this is, this is a long, exhausting task for even those who were doing it. This is what I think they're laying their coats at Saul's feet. I think this is what it's about. They're, they, they, their coats are in the way and they're probably it's sweating and it's hot and they don't want to get dirty. And so those outer garments, they take off. I mean, it's just this horrible, agonizing, slow, painful way to die. And Stephen, he would have felt every one of those blows from those stones until he drew his last breath. But that's, so that's, that's one, we'll come back to that, but that's one kind of spirituality that you see here. And I, I don't want you to miss that. I mean, that's very deliberate in the way that this is laid out for us by Luke. This is what the speech was all about. That was all setting up. Here's this type of spirituality that's void of the Spirit. Do you recognize any forms of that in our own day? You see it in the news. You see it pop up in your social media feed, maybe. There are, there are organized, official, religious, religious versions of this. And there are secular, popular versions of this kind of, quote, spirituality. There's a great book, and I won't linger on this point, but Seculosity, I know some of you have read it, and the, the subtitle is How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Become became our new religion and what to do about it by David Zoll. But it's this spiritless spirituality. It's idolatry. And, and it's, it, it's not something that, that, that people um, uh, are kind of casual about. It, it can become ferocious. We see this. So there's a second kind of spirituality, though, that, that's set in contrast to that. And, and, and Saul was able to see this, and we can see it. And so Stephen's 
not filled with himself. He's not filled with tradition. He's not filled with ritual. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, the text says. And instead of lashing out in hatred and anger, when the worst comes at him, here's what we see him do. He looks up to heaven. He looks to heaven. But he, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Where do you, where do you look when the world comes at you? It's kind of the first identifier, isn't it? Of, the, of this second kind of spirituality. Another sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit here. He prayed for his killers. Isn't that remarkable? He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit as they're stoning him. Verse 59. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice so they could all hear. With all the strength he had, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So in the face of this unrelenting fury of this mob, as these stones are are pelting his bloody, his weakened body, what is he doing? He's asking the Lord, crying out to the Lord on behalf of his murderers. And that brings us to a third sign, a third identifier. If you notice, he's basically here, he's imitating Jesus, isn't he? You, 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 start, you start to pattern your life, not after you, not after your culture, not after some other person, but you start to pattern your life after Christ. And that's what we see here. Christ is being formed in him by the Spirit. Remember Luke 23, Jesus tells the Father as he's hanging on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he prays on behalf of those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. 1 Peter 2.23, Peter kind of has that in mind. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see this in Stephen. True, spirit-filled spirituality. We see it on display here. Let me illustrate it real quickly by a story I recently heard about a man named Joseph Sung. Some of you may be familiar with the story. He was a Romanian pastor who was beaten and tortured for 25 years when, when they were under communist rule. After the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, he became a leader in the church until his death in 1998. But after his release, he recounted some of the, some of the things he endured uh, during that, those long years, decades of, of torture and, and the intimidate, intimidation that he endured. And in one instance, they stripped him completely naked. They held a concrete drill in front of him and they told him that they were going to fill him full of holes for every person that he led to Christ. And, and the guard said these words to him. He said, I have the power of God as he held that drill. Just like your God, I can kill you. Listen to what Pastor Sung said to him in that moment when he thought this may be his last. He says, it it doesn't take the power of God for you to kill me. It does take the power of God for someone threatened by you to love you. And I do. Which one of those looks supernatural to you? Which one of those points to the power of God at work in a person? Which one of those looks like a spirit-filled spirituality? Is that the power of God? At work in you, brothers and sisters, is, 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 do you pray like this? Is this evidence? Is, is, the, is it evident that Christ is being formed in you by the Holy Spirit? So we see these two, two distinct kinds of 
called spirituality. But also, we, we note two kinds of courts here. See this here. And there's this court on earth that's just blistering mad at, 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 with Stephen and his message. And then there's the court in heaven. Those contrasts are very apparent here. You can see the earthly court, the Sanhedrin, this 70 plus leaders who, who had the responsibility of adjudicating uh, you know, issues according to the Word of God. This goes all the way back to Exodus and Numbers and the Old Testament. So you see that court, and we've seen them already in, in the book of Acts. But then there's also a heavenly court. Look at verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Luke tells us what he saw. Then he tells us what Stephen said that he saw. And it's repeated with minor variation. And he said to everybody, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that's the other court. That's the throne room of heaven. Stephen has this opportunity, this revelation to see. And so Jesus in Scripture, we, we, most of the time when he's, when he's referred to uh, being in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God. And this is how we, we walked through the Apostles' Creed a couple years ago. And remember, this is, how the, this is how most creedal statements. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. He sits. But here, he's on his feet. And that's really unusual. And it's significant. It means something. Now, there's, there are some different thoughts on what this means. It could mean simply, and I've heard this uh, many times expressed, maybe that Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen into heaven. That might be what he sees. We're not told explicitly. I, I've, I've heard of deathbed stories of you know, someone that's you know, been basically unconscious and non-communicative for days. And they raise up in bed and they raise their arms and say, Jesus, and then they die. Uh, actually, James Boyce, uh, Pastor 10th Prez in Philadelphia, his father, that was how he died. And, um, and so there, there may be something like that. I think one thing we can say with absolute certainty is this, is that heaven is impacted, heaven is moved when one person who trusts Christ is deeply opposed it registers there when his children suffer. For the Christian who's abused, the Christian who's abandoned and rejected and threatened and ridiculed and beaten and imprisoned, yet still trusts in Jesus and acts like Jesus, listen, you have not been overlooked by God. You have not been abandoned. You have, heaven is moved. Heaven responds. We can at least say that much. Whether we have the revelation like Stephen does to actually behold it with our eyes, we can, we can, can have some assurance, some confidence that that's true. But I think that this particular scene is pointing to something special. And that Jesus is standing there at the right hand of his Father's throne, and it means he's standing there as Stephen's advocate. As his advocate. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I think it's more clear this week. In essence, he's saying to Stephen, you're defended here. You're defending here. Stephen sees Jesus rising to advocate for him as he's about to die. As if to say, my favor rests on you regardless of what this human court says. You can have confidence that we'll receive you as good and faithful servant. Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. 
In Luke 12, verse 8, listen to Jesus' own words. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus is standing here, I think, is this stance of advocacy, this stance of acknowledgement, this stance of endorsement, this stance of encouragement. That's what this is about. In essence, he's saying, Stephen, and this is maybe how some would view this, Stephen, you're not just a, a, quote, good loser. No, not at all. In the estimation of this court, which is the only one that really matters, you're, you're in the right. So, But then it goes even further when Stephen's words say more. And this is, again, as he, as he says what he saw. Look again, verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But do you hear how that's saying more? When Stephen says what he saw, this is the first time that expression, Son of Man, is used outside of the Gospel accounts. And the only one who ever uses that phrase in the Gospels in reference to himself is Jesus. And so now Stephen's basically saying this, in the court of heaven, the decisions here on earth against me and against Jesus, they're overthrown. Overthrown. You say, how do you know that? Just Justin. Well, listen to Christ. Matthew 26. Listen to this. He's on trial to be executed by this same earthly court. These same 70 plus men. And, and the high priest comes to Jesus and he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 26, verse 63. And Jesus says to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So I think when Stephen says this, and now he's seated, he's not seated, he's standing, he's basically saying, everyone who opposed Jesus is ruled out of order. In the courtroom of heaven, the Son of Man's not gone. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. He's alive. He's ruling. His message is true. It's vindicated. But he could be even going further than that with this revelation to Stephen. Could it be he's also wanting to uh, embody here Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 for Stephen? Possibly. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, Jesus the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Is Jesus wanting to get Stephen to get that message that this is the kind of king he is? Stephen, every enemy, every injustice, every lie, every threat, every inequity, every wrong in your life, it's part of my plan. Your death is even part of my plan to fix everything. He wants us to understand this. So, so we, we get to see what Saul saw here. We, by looking at these two kinds of spirituality, these two kinds of courts, we see that the, the fury of the world, and that's what this is, the fury of the world can become in God's power and His wisdom, it can become this opportunity to see Christ's message and see His messengers vindicated. That's what's taking place. Second, the persecution of the church often becomes the propulsion for the advancement of the gospel. So Luke here, he fuses the very worst we could possibly imagine, and I choose those words carefully. 
I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean that to exaggerate. This horrible persecution, this death of someone right in front of our eyes is this painful, searing loss. It's horrific. And yet he fuses that to God's sovereign leadership of taking the gospel and the church to the world. So put together here. This painful persecution and this very purposeful propulsion. It's the lowest and the most discouraging and the highest and the most encouraging. The world's worst and heaven's best. That's what we see here. And so it's as if He wants us to go when we, when we read this. Really? Can God really do that? Can he, is Romans 8.28 that God works all these things together for the good of those who love Him? Is that something more than just something we needlepoint and hang on the wall as a decoration? Is that really true? And let me show you how he portrays how he portrays the worst, and then we'll see how he portrays the best. So the worst. Notice in verse one of chapter eight, it says that Saul approved of his execution. A man is brutally slaughtered right in front of his eyes, and he basically says, "That's good. I like that." Yes, he's giving approval. It's like a man. That's like showing up to a a funeral of a co-worker wearing a shirt that says, this man deserved to die. I mean, it's insane. That's how bad this is, but it gets worse. It goes on, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. I mean, his body isn't even cold yet, and this mass persecution breaks out against the church. These are not looking good. Not at all. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of those early Christians. Many of them just brand new believers. These things are happening, but it gets worse. You know, because prior to this, it had been Peter and John and the rest of the apostles who had been the ones that were threatened and imprisoned and beaten up. But now, anyone's fair game. Anyone's fair game. They're like raiding the youth group Wednesday night, beating them up. Again, verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Again, you remember just the numbers of people that we've been talking about come to faith in Christ as we've studied through the book of Acts. I mean, 3,000 at Pentecost, 5,000 another day, even larger numbers later where it says more multitudes than ever before coming to faith in Christ. So we're talking tens of thousands of relatively new Christians here. I mean, you just imagine a city being emptied of, I don't know, thirty to 40,000 Christians in a day. Think of that. That's what's, that's what's recorded here. How discouraged would we be? All that's left, the way it's recorded here, everybody scatters except the apostles. It's like the apostles are just sitting in this house. Just, just, just them, the 11 of them. And they're looking at one other thing, the 12 of them. What, what happened? What now? Everybody's gone. We'd be thinking, we may be saying, we're done. It's over. This is, this is, we're toast. There cannot be any good that comes out of this. How could you think anything else? But it gets even worse. Verse 3, Saul was, quote, ravaging the church. That's a graphic word. It's outside of Scripture. It's used of, of uh, a predator, you know, chasing down, catching its prey, and just tearing it to pieces. That's, that's the word. He's basically saying Saul was, Saul was just violently tearing the church apart. 
Then he says, let me get real specific with what I mean by that. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Homes raided. Doors busted in. Violently dragged away parents. You can almost hear the children screaming. Just think of this. The humanity of this. They're violently separated from their parents. Not sure if they'll ever see them again. This is awful. This is the worst. But then he turns it. And here comes the best. Those who fled Jerusalem, text says, were scattered. Now, uh, you just read that and you could just pass over and say, you just went everywhere. But the word he uses here is very important. It's, it's, it's the word that, that's used of a farmer planting or scattering seed. In other words, what he's saying here, with that one word, you see, these aren't refugees. These are missionaries. God has scattered His people, scattered these seed-bearing, gospel-proclaiming messengers through this horrible thing, and it was horrible. Through this horrible thing, through this searing loss, God is sending tens of thousands of His witnesses throughout the world. And He's scattering them like seed that are planting the seed all over the place. And so God sovereignly uses Stephen's stoning and his death as his impetus to take Christ's witnesses, scattering them all over the place as they're proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. And God's providence, He chooses to use Stephen's martyrdom as a means to rapidly advance the Gospel. And brothers and sisters, I mean, if you just, I know we may bristle under that. If that doesn't happen, we're not here this morning. I mean, and just this history is played out as in God's providence. I mean, it's it, we're here this morning as believers in Jesus Christ, as recipients of this grace because of something that happened here 2,000 years ago to Stephen. I mean, really. And then it gets real specific. They were, they were all scattered, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, if you understand kind of the, the whole purpose of the book of Acts and what's, what's unfolding here, you know where we began. It was in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where Jesus, while He's still, before He's ascended to the Father, He said to His disciples, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and what? And Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, so that's what's taking place right here. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. And you know what? There's no hint, as the way Luke's recorded for this for us, there's no hint that they're in any way upset with or blaming Stephen as they go out. It's not like, why did he have to open his big trap? Couldn't he have just calmed down a little bit? Just waited, maybe waited this thing out. Nobody's saying that. They've lost their homes. They've lost families. They've lost everything. They're fleeing. They're facing persecution. That they go proclaiming this gospel that they know is true and they know that people need to hear it. Scattered, preaching the word. 
these ordinary Christians. And that's what the apostles aren't going. It's these ordinary Christians. They're courageous and they're bold. And they're and, and they're knowing what they're going to face. And yet they believe this message is true. The mob thought that in killing Stephen, that might silence the gospel. But what happened? It just added fuel to the fire. I mean, today is a day of mourning for some of us who are pyromaniacs. Today is the first day of the burn ban that will be in place until October 1st, which we can celebrate again when that day comes. I was burning stuff yesterday. Uh, just one more celebration. But you think of you, you have a fire and you have those, those embers and you know a storm's coming and you see the wind starting to pick up and you think, man, I need to get that fire out quickly and I don't have, whole, I don't have water or anything nearby. So one thought is, you know, I've, I've actually seen people do this with campfires. They still like beating it with a shovel or something like that. And you might get that fire or that flame out, but what do you do? And that, especially if the wind's blowing, all of those, uh, you know, embers are flying through the air and being carried along. If there's dry leaves or dry grass, it's just starting other fires. And that, that's kind of the picture. So such is the case whenever Christ's followers are persecuted. That's what happens here on this day. That Yes, they extinguished one flame with the death of Stephen. But what did they do? They, they ignited thousands of other flames, flung them out, and they're carried along. And the Gospel, they go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and the thing just goes crazy. So what God's saying here is when the worst hit, I, put, I, I started putting my people exactly where I wanted them to fulfill my plan. Notice in verse 2, just one more way we see the best coming out of the worst. It reads, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now we could read that and think, oh yeah, well of course, it's a sad day. But it's, it's that, but it's more than that. It was illegal to mourn the death of a public criminal, which is what Stephen was in the eyes of the court. But what do these Christians do? They meet and they lament in public. And it's almost like they're saying, hear us, hear our voice. This is a searing loss and we, we are grieving and we're sorrowing over the reality of what's just taken place. But we... We defy your threats. And, and we want you to know you don't scare us. That's, it's a statement of protest, isn't it, too? In the midst of the lamentation. Then I think of the timing, the manner in which Luke introduces Saul here is interesting and it's very important because he introduces, you know, Saul before Stephen's death, before his prayer on behalf of those who are, who are killing him. But then later in verse 3 of chapter 8, we see he's mentioned again after Stephen's buried. And, and we know, again, that Saul, who later became Paul, uh, was converted, used by God as this, one of the greatest human instruments of the gospel's advance. And he goes on to pen two-thirds of the New Testament books. But I, but I think Luke's wanting us to see that Christ used his church, his church, and so that Saul, this great persecutor of the church, would be redeemed and transformed because Christ used, I think, Stephen's prayers. He used his prayers that his persecutors might come to faith. Essentially what he's praying. Saul's one of those. Saul's one of those who's hearing as he says this with a loud voice. And I think later, by the grace of God, this is 
Maybe what the Lord used in part, he'll be converted and will become. Again, understand that the Christ, the one he was persecuting, is in fact Lord, Savior of all. Stephen's enemy, as he prayed, would become his friend for eternity. That's amazing. What grace. Saul will be changed. A couple things real quick to learn before we close. How, how, from how this persecution became propulsion for the gospel, for the second point. First, just knowing that Saul was this enemy of the cross of Christ, that should give us, again, great hope for those in our lives whom we see rejecting the gospel. I think there's some encouragement to us. Whether it's a co-worker, again, a neighbor, a spouse, a child, classmate, there's no heart that's too hardened for God to soften it. And so, so don't grow tired, don't grow weary in praying for those in your life who've not yet embraced the gospel because you don't know what God may use to draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and don't, don't be surprised when you hear about, you know, even, you know, quote, notorious sinners turning to Christ. God is able. He is able. If God can take a persecuting rebel rabbi named Saul and turn him into this gospel-proclaiming apostle named Paul, there's no one who's out of reach for the gospel, the power of the Spirit. And so, not just should that give us hope as we pray for lost sinners, but it should give us hope as we think about the church and the world that we live in and, and the opportunities for the gospel to, that are there. There's no, uh, no matter how hostile this cultural moment is, it is, God is not hindered. We ought not to be afraid. Second, let's pray that we would have spirit-emboldened conviction not to shrink back in the face of opposition or fear. Let's pray we would have courage to speak the gospel of grace, even when it's not popular, even when, when it may cost us something or cost us everything. Let's pray that we'd possess this kind of urgency that would actually move, move us out into uncomfortable places where the Lord wants to use us. Because we know that the victory has already been secured and we walk in that victory in Christ and and our mouths can be emboldened to testify to the gospel of grace even to those who will vehemently oppose us. Grace that turned enemies like us into God's friends. I pray that we would be gripped by that as a church. So what's happening here in this text? What's God doing? You notice what He's doing? He's doing in the church exactly what He did with the cross. See that? With the cross, God took one of the worst things that could possibly happen. Creatures killing the Creator. Does it get any worse than that? I don't think so. They tortured Him. And instead of intrusively stopping all of this evil, what does God do? He, he exploits it. He uses it. He took the horrible treatment of Jesus who was subjected to uh, who God subjected His Son to every temptation and, and, and to horrendous suffering, cosmic suffering and judgment. And he, and he did that to accomplish our salvation. He brought the best out of the worst. And Luke's saying here in essence what God did on the cross, He does for the church. Hurt her and you help her. God will advance her. So when what you see is when, when God, God fights evil in, in, in 
today and through the church, it's not like he's using uh, karate. He's more likely using something like judo. Now, I'm risking because I don't know what I'm talking about here other than things I've seen in movies and watched on television. So uh, um, so correct me, uh, those of you who know these things later, but I, I think in karate, you're using, you're, you're striking your enemy. That's the, that's the thing you're after. You're trying to thrash them into submission, basically, by the, the force of your power and of your hits, and your strikes. In judo, what do you do? You use the power, you use the momentum of your opponent against them. And that's essentially what God does in that vein. So, so think of that. As we think of the lake of fire will be this final judgment upon Satan, and it will be, and it will be, that will be it. But I think this is going to be part of it for all eternity, that for all eternity, every demon and Satan himself, they will know this, that everything they did, doing their worst, God, it it fit right into God's plan. And they'll have this conscious realization of that. And that's going to be hell for them. This This is how the Lord works even today. I want to close with a familiar story to many of us, but uh, maybe not all if you're newer here newer to Christianity even. Elizabeth Elliot um, became famous for returning to the jungle when her husband, um, where her husband and four others were martyred. And so on Sunday, January 8th, 1956, on this shore of a lonely uh, river in an Ecuadorian jungle, five missionaries were all shot through with arrows and impaled with spears. They were treated horribly. The world's worst. And they were killed. And it became very famous. It made the front page of newspapers and magazines, particularly in the United States. It was the cover of Life magazine. The death of these missionaries. And there was a massive response. The U.S. even sent Marines down to Ecuador in the wake of this. But years after, after this martyrdom took place, Elizabeth Elliot wrote this. To the world at large, this was a sad waste. Five young lives. But God had His plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on that beach. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I knew your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Their lives have left their mark on ours. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. And my point in this is it's not, oh, what, what sacrifices people make. My point is God uses the worst to accomplish the best. He does. Don't you, don't you want to throw yourself into what God is doing in the world? Again, Acts, it's about the ongoing mission of our triune God. What's, what a great thing to be involved in. And, and, and we, need to, we need to turn the one who stands by the side of the Father. We need to look to Him, depend upon Him, 
uh, and, and everything we are, we can then give to him and to his cause. And he will make the worst accomplish his best. And this table set in front of us that we're going to eat and drink from before we go and eat and drink from the long tables and all the smorgasbord in just a little bit, this is full of significance. It's a reminder of God, again, using the worst to accomplish our eternal best. And let's celebrate that as we come. Let's pray. Lord, as we sing now, we, I pray for, again, for those who, whose souls are restless and are sorrowful even this morning, who feel the worst right now of the world. I pray that you would cheer them with thoughts um, and, and stoke the fires of their faith to believe, Lord, that in ways we may never even understand or see this side of eternity, Lord, you are accomplishing the best. Thank you that you are on our side as we're going to sing because of Jesus Christ. So help our souls to be still, to bear patiently the cross of grief and pain as we fix our gaze on Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father. Lord, minister to us by your Spirit as we eat and as we drink, and as these, these symbols give us this assurance to us that you are, you are on our side in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.